and thank you all for worshiping with us today. And I hope you got a Bible, and if you do, I'd love for you to open up with us to Luke chapter 4. We'll also be turning to Ephesians 6 in the latter part of our time together. If you want to put a marker there, not a hard scripture to find, but we'll be turning there later on in our time together. Uh, today uh, is a special, it's been a special weekend, it's a special Sunday, so I felt like uh, it's appropriate that we take a break from our study in Joshua uh, to do a bit of reflecting, uh, a bit of remembering. Uh, today we're going to cover a large swath of some of the most important scriptures core to the Christian faith, core to the theme um, of what we, who we are and what we are as the church of God and as the people of God. I, I feel like the occasion was just too big and too important for us to not talk about this and really hopefully as a church communicate to ourselves and to the world who we are and really kind of understand what the Bible says we are and, and defines us as uh, the church um, of God. Uh, yesterday, as we all know, and hopefully gave uh, proper and much thought to was the 20th anniversary of September 11th. 2001, a day that defined a generation. Of course, everybody here no doubt remembers where you were, what you were doing um, when you heard that news. Perhaps you even watched it happen in real time if, if uh, you were tuned in as you saw all those events unfold. And we've all uh, shared with each other, I'm sure, about what that day was like and why that day literally changed history, changed the world as we knew it. Um, it's a day that much like the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, much like the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, it's a day that uh, shocked and impacted our country in a way that will forever be remembered and recognized and looked back on. It's hard to believe uh, it's been 20 years. Uh, for me, it, it feels like it was just yesterday, but as I was in sixth grade, um, now knowing that I'm uh, in my uh, early 30s, it, it, it must feel like 20 years or it should feel like 20 years. Uh, but of course, this day did more than just impact our country. Um, in many ways, that day drew a line in the sand of our world. Now, this line wasn't new. It, it, maybe it was more highlighted by that day. This line wasn't new. This line had existed for centuries, but every so many gener generations forgets that it's there. Every so many generations forget that there is a line so thick and so bold in our world that was drawn a little while ago. Every so many generations forgets that it's there, forgets what it means. In fact, the line that 9-11 highlighted was originally drawn, believe it or not, 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, and that lines up with a pretty significant event in history. If you are catching on, you're on the right track. 2,000 years ago, the world was coming off thousands of consecutive years of unrest. And I mean capital unrest. We highlight dark days in our age. We look back on dark days as being you know, rare occurrences. But in the ancient world, every day, and I'm not overstating this, every day was a dark day. The world was ruled by ideologies that seemed so far into us, but which were universally agreed on and upheld in ancient times. In the ancient world, might made right. To show mercy was to show weakness. Meekness equaled weakness. In the ancient world, 2,000 years ago, the world was exhausted by conquest. Powerful men had spent years vying for more power, taking turn ruling the world. Empire after empire took turn flexing and expanding its domination. 
All of these did so by a means that we were reminded of 20 years ago, but 2,000 years ago and before, the tools of tyranny and terror were the standards by which every kingdom of the world operated. Tyranny was not the exception back then. It was the rule. It was the way by which every successful kingdom ruled. Terror and terrorism were not anomalies or rare instances in the ancient world, but the choice battle strategy. Every nation, even the good nations, every nation was every nation's enemy. Every nation was always out to get the other nations. Even factions within the same nation saw terrorism as the way to get things done. Surprise attacks were the best kinds of attacks. To oust kings past their prime, to install kings that would get things done. There were no democracies. There were no civil conversations. It was just tyranny and terror all day, every day. Surprise attacks, marauding, coups, and revolts were not rare exceptions, but were common occurrences. Genocide was encouraged as the only way to really win a battle. Even nations that aspired for morality more than others still resorted to terror as the only way to achieve and maintain power. The world's first major empire that employed these tactics better than anybody else was the kingdom of Egypt, ruled by a dynasty of pharaohs claiming to have the power of 10 gods on their side. If you crossed their line, they boasted that they could control nature and nature obeyed them. They could get frogs or flies, rivers or the sun to do what they wanted them to do. Pharaohs kept everyone in line as they projected this illusion that they were in control. They could easily take life from people. They could give life to other people. They could cause people to vanish if they wanted to. Egypt so suddenly collapsed, though, by a pesky slave rebellion. And while there was a brief window where things seemed to be improving for the world, it was very short-lived. A brief light shined with the nation of Israel under King David and Solomon, but it, but it wasn't able to keep it together. It was like a shooting star. It faded very quickly. Eventually, the nation of Israel fell victim to the ways of tyranny and terror, feeling the pull from the world to do as it did. Israel wanted to be like the rest of the world. And I, I want to show you just a brief snapshot of one of Israel's darkest chapters. You may not have read this story before, but it just captures how even Israel wasn't above the ways of tyranny and terror. Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Tizra. He reigned two years, but his servant Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Tizra drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on the throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. If you read the books of 1 and 2 Kings, these are not rare instances. These are every other chapter because the people of Israel even believed the only way to get things done is by tyranny and by terror. That's who wins the battles and that's who gets to rule the world. Meanwhile, Israel and the whole world would fall deep under the rule of the different empires that would rise up in the aftermath by way of tyranny and terror once again the kingdom of Assyria took turn took a turn ruling the world it was ruthless it was in, uh, able to enslave and conquer the known world and if you dare crossed the line of the Assyrian kings they would impale you and they would laugh as they watched you suffer and bleed out 
But Assyria did not last forever. There was a greater kingdom on the horizon. The kingdom of Babylon took a turn ruling after that, invading foreign countries, burning every religious center to the ground, enslaving every boy and emasculating them, changing their names, changing their languages, killing women, killing children. And if you dare cross the kings of Babylon, they had limestone ovens built to enforce their rule. And if you would so oppose them, they would burn you alive. But Babylon didn't last forever. They had a surprise attack one night when the kings were all getting drunk and a banquet was celebrating Babylon's uh, eternal rule. But that night at the gates, the kingdom of Persia was attacking them by surprise and killed everybody except for a few uh, in, the na- in the nation of Babylon. The kingdom of Persia uh, brought a brand new style of warfare to the battlefield. They were bloodthirsty hounds of soldiers spreading their dominion farther east and farther west than ever before. The Persian king considered himself the king of lions. His men could tame lions and they so believed that lions obeyed them, they built lion's dens. And if you dared cross the Persian king, he would feed you to his pets. Persia was considered an unstoppable force, but they met their match in Alexander III of Macedon who before the age of 30 established an empire that spread from Greece all the way to the eastern world of India down to the southern southern place of Africa. Alexander became known as Alexander the Great, empire, emperor of the Greeks. He was the world champion. He was undefeated in battle. His language was sophisticated yet accessible and the whole world adapted Greece as their choice tongue, giving everyone a common tongue for the first time since the days of Babel. Alexander the Great died at just 32 years old, some say because he ran out of worlds to conquer. The Greeks remained in control of the world for a hundred years or so, seeking to bring universal allegiance to the pantheon of gods. They transformed every worship house into a temple of Zeus and would kill anybody that did not comply. But this dominance was disrupted by a little republic called Rome. Rome burst on the scene with a military force like never before, specializing in naval combat. They were unmatched on any battlefield. Rome was the right empire at the right time to capitalize on all the greats that came before it and channel all the innovations the world knew. Under the reign of Julius Caesar, Rome saw an opportunity to go to the next level and they transformed the Republic into the world's major empire. Rome installed regional governors who would keep every little country in control. They paved roads from east to west to be able to get their troops there quickly. Everyone still spoke Greek, but they feared and saluted Rome. Rome utilized tools of every empire before them to enforce their law. They built arenas where lions would eat people alive to spectators. They set people on fire, sending them down the city streets to light up the night sky. But for those that crossed Rome, on home turf or around the world, Rome had a silver bullet up its sleeve. Roman crucifixion. They would use trees if there was one that was just the right architecture, but their choice means was the one in the middle where they could stretch out the arms of someone so that they would suffer the most. They would be fooled into lifting themselves up to breathe and gasp for air, but that would only prolong the process and only make the suffering even worse. 
Rome chose the cross because it accomplished two things. It tortured people the most and it humiliated people the most. Rome used crosses to drain people of life, to tempt anybody that dared to fight its rule. They crucified people just off the ground on public hillsides so that everybody could see the pitiful excuse of husk, suffer, and die. The Roman imperial family believed themselves to be the son of God, the sons of the gods. They saw the world as their playground. Rome believed the gods play and people pay and the Caesars played the role of the gods and all the subjects suffered for it. This was the world 2000 years ago. Tyranny and terror were the standard by which every leader in every nation flexed its muscle and almost everybody suffered for it. Especially women. Women were commodities in the ancient world, traded like livestock, sold at the marketplace. Children were not considered blessings. They were burdens. They were obstacles. Rome disrupted the tradition that all children were automatic heirs to parents, which had been natural since the beginning of time. Rome, Roman men had such a complex, they did not want to see their goods go to children that did not meet their standards. So Roman law allowed Roman fathers to write their boys out of the will until they were 13 years old. And if they proved themselves strong enough and decent enough and worthy enough, they may be written into the will. But if they weren't, the Roman fathers could find someone else to adopt. Roman girls were never written into the wills. They were most likely abandoned before they were of the age two. They were left by the riverside or fed to the wolves. In Rome and under Rome, if you wanted it, you could take it as long as you had the power to do so. You never gave anything away. You always extracted as much as you could and made as much as you could off of it. Rome seemed like the result of a thousand years of all the worst things about people snowballing and compounding into one evil empire. This was humanity at its worst and it seemed as if it was here to stay. But then something strange happened. On a cold winter's night, a star lit up the western sky. This wasn't just any star. This star lit up the night sky when a baby boy was born. And of all places, Bethlehem, Judah. Astronomical reports from all over the world point to a showcase in the heavens like never before, but only a few claim to actually have seen it up close. Some wise men from the Far East were convinced that this was a sign from the gods, that they began a two-year journey to meet the star's king. Augustus Caesar, Julius' son, began bringing special attention to himself. He began hearing whispers that a son of God was born somewhere in the Middle East. So to bring attention to himself as, of course, the real and rightful son of God, Augustus Caesar had these coins printed all throughout Rome that had the Latin phrase divine Julius or divine son printed on them. As if he felt threatened by this report of a baby boy being born. Meanwhile, Caesar's regional Judah, Judean leader Herod felt so threatened by this night that he requested thousands of Roman soldiers, legions of Roman soldiers. He called up Caesar and said, hey, I need the biggest and strongest armies you've got. What's the occasion? Well, there's a potential king that's been born and we've got to snuff him out. So these Roman legions came in and hunted down the boy for which this star shined. And the result was thousands of babies were slaughtered throughout Israel. But the boy was able to be spared. He went to be hidden in Egypt for a number of years. But then he came back and grew up in a little town northern, in the northern parts of Israel called Nazareth. 
He attended a local synagogue where his, uh, as a faithful Jewish boy and man, taking care of his widowed mother, running his father's carpenter business. And then one Sabbath day, around his 30th birthday, everything changed. He came to a synagogue prepared for his turn to read the scriptures as part of the service that day. Little did everybody know that on this random Sabbath day, this Jewish carpenter would announce to the world that a brand new order was gonna be established through him. That he was drawing a line in the sand that the world would be changed forever by what he would say and what he would do and the movement he would start. Now, there wouldn't have been a lot of people in attendance that day. There wouldn't have been news traveling faster than ear to ear. But in hindsight, everybody points to this day as the day this brand new order officially kicked off. From that day on, he would begin a ministry that within three years would launch him to nationwide fame. And within just 30 years, he would be spoken of around the whole world. And over the next 2,000 years, he would be recognized by trillions of people as the son of the living God, the savior of mankind. Before all that though, he was just a carpenter taking a turn to read the Bible at a worship service. Luke 4 records his turn at reading the scripture on this particular Sabbath day. And it's what he says after he finishes reading that makes this such a momentous day in history. If you have your Bibles at Luke 4, look down at verse 16 through 22. And so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, a brand new order has been established and all who bore witness to him marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Is not this the carpenter? Is not this Jesus of Nazareth? He was known by that up until this point. But from this point forward, he began to be called Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah of God. After reading the scroll and saying that he himself was ushering in this brand new age, this brand new era where God was gonna push back on the systems of the world. He was gonna push back on the bondage and the suffering and the oppression of the world. The tyranny and terror that ruled the world, it was gonna come to an end. Many believe that Jesus, of course, was the long-awaited Messiah from God. He used this text to clarify that God's Messiah was not coming to be a conquering king, but a savior who would break the chains of this world, who would go against everything this world believed in and every way this world operated by. 
In this proclamation, Jesus defines God in complete contrast and distinction from the way the world was. God was giving the world something that would be accessible to all classes of people. He was preaching a gospel to the poor, not only the poor, but by acknowledging the poor, this was Jesus saying, this is for everybody, not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just the men, not just the kings, but everybody God was going to give people a way into his kingdom, no matter who they were or what they had done or had not done, how rich they were, how poor they were. The kingdom of God had wide open doors. God was establishing an ideology that would promote and push for freedom of all categories of people, setting people at liberty, as the scripture says, from the chains of their heart to the chains of this world. All captives, all blind, all oppressed would be free through his ministry. God was showing the world that he loved all people and desired good for all people, echoing what the angels sang the night Jesus was born. Peace on earth and goodwill towards all people. That phrase, acceptable year of the Lord, literally means a time of favor from God. This is where the line was drawn in the sand. This sets apart the world that was and the world that would rise and be shaped by this moment in history. Jesus spent three years of ministry introducing the world to the one true God. And his ministry was anchored in two values that are introduced to us in this scripture. Favor from God, freedom for people. Favor from God, freedom for people. Jesus came to signal that God favored humanity. He was not angry. He was not mad. But God so loved the world. God had a good will towards the world. He gave a gift to the world. God gave a gift to the world. Jesus was his gift. He came to set the world free from sin, free from death, to enable people to live with choice and ability to serve God and honor him with their lives. What punctuated and really amplified Jesus' message, though, were his actions. Jesus came with the power of heaven, but he did not use it for himself. Everybody before him with the power that he had would have used that to amplify and exalt themselves, but not Jesus. He went to the outcast. He went to those that no one else would dare go towards. He came, he could have came an exalted king, but he came something else. He could have lorded over the whole world with his glory, but he did something else. He served others day in and day out. He gathered a following that was training and instructing. He was training and instructing to do unto others as he did. Now, his following didn't always get it right. They were expecting a kingdom. They were expecting pleasures and luxuries and treasures untold. They often would argue with each other about who was going to be able to take the most treasures in the kingdom and be on the right and left of Jesus whenever this kingdom came. On one occasion, they argued about it out loud, and Jesus took the opportunity to correct them and really define his ministry in a way that is important for us. So if you would turn over with me to Luke 22, I want you to see this very, very often ignored passage of Scripture. Luke 22, it's right before Jesus is arrested, really the day uh, after um, the, the, the Wednesday of Passion Week. The scriptures record a very special conversation, if you want to find it, in Luke 22, verses 24 through 29, or 24 through 27. 
Now there arose a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, over their subjects, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. He said, I know where y'all get this idea. We've lived in a world of tyranny and terror where kings take power and they use that power for themselves and those that are in their little club take advantage of that power as well. The kings of the Gentiles lord over their subjects and take advantage of their subjects. But what does verse 26 say? But not so among you. On the contrary, he defines that his kingdom would be the exact opposite as the world's kingdom. A world of tyranny, a world of terror, a world of taking, a world of taking advantage of people, a world of power grabs. Not so among you. On the contrary, He says, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He says, I know how y'all see the world. The one at the table that gets brought, things brought to him, he's the great one. But what am I doing? I'm not at the table asking y'all to do things for me. I'm with my servant's towel around my waist doing things for you. And that's how the kingdom of God operates. Mark 10 clarifies it like this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is such a big deal. Couple this with his opening sermon at, at Nazareth. In this moment, Jesus flips the script for how the world would work or should work. Greatness in the kingdom of God would not be measured by success or superiority, but by servanthood. Greatness would be forever defined by serving. Jesus was a king. He came to establish a kingdom, but he would not do so through tyranny or terror like every other king and kingdom were established. In a world of takers, God came as a giver. God came as a servant. Jesus served everyone the elite, the outcast. He showed grace to the religious, he showed grace to the sinner. No one had ever witnessed anything like this before. He earnestly wanted everyone to know the favor of God who did not prefer you based on your good works and he did not judge you based on your bad deeds, but genuinely he loved everybody equally and wanted everyone to know the freedom that comes from knowing him apart from the systems and chains of this world. He taught his disciples that the way they would change the world would be by loving one another, sacrificially, humbly, intentionally. He said the night before he died, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are mine. If you have love for one another, that night that he was about to face the darkest moment of his life, he sat there with 11 of his closest friends. They were in, back against the wall. The world was against them. And Jesus says, guys, if we stick to this strategy, if we serve, 
serve, if we love, mark my words, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 300 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, this will be the line in the sand and everyone will know who we are, who I am by our love. It may seem like a dead end way. It may not make sense. People may say, oh, that won't work. But Jesus was about to prove once and for all and make the greatest impact ever on this world and show that it would indeed work. Turns out the reason why he was targeted by the religious and the governments that existed in that day is because they felt so threatened by him. Satan knew the world was going to be unraveled from his grip by this movement. His grip of tyranny and terror, his tactic of fear and uncertainty. So when the day came that Jesus was arrested, accused, and sentenced to die, he opened not his mouth. Even the Roman governor marveled in disbelief. Pilate was beside himself as Jesus was passively, ice cold before him. No matter how threatened he was, Pilate and Rome were used to people groveling for their lives, but not Jesus. Jesus finally opened his mouth on trial and he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world and they're not fighting. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says to Pilate, you watch my following. You watch what happens from here. We are not a group like you've ever seen before. We do things differently. Your people, you go by tyranny and terror. You fight and you take and you claw and you grab for power, but not my people. And yet 2,000 years from now, nobody will remember you except because of my story that includes you. Pilate mocked him, had him beaten, had him stripped of all of his clothes and whipped just to try to get the last word. But we know how that story goes. Jesus was hung on a cross. He died for the sins of the world, suffered for all the unjust and the the broken. And after he was laid to rest and everybody disavowed association with him, Peter gave up, everybody unfollowed. The unthinkable happened three days later. He came back to life. Just like he said he would. He predicted it. He said, I'm going to die and going to raise again. Nobody believed him. Nobody was waiting at the tomb counting down. They were dedicating his body thinking he was going to begin, just beginning his eternal rest in that tomb. But all that denied and forsook him showed back up on board. He walked through their hidden place that night, through the wall that Sunday night. He proved to them he was the son of the living God. He showed them his scars. He showed them the pierced hole in his side. He proved to them he was back from the grave. And all of a sudden, everything he ever said was validated. And he said, guys, it's time to get to work the way I've been telling you we're going to change the world. This is how it's done. From there, he commissioned them to go to the world and preach a message of salvation, a message of favor and freedom. His strategy for the church was very simple. Love like he loved, 
Give like he gave. Use freedom to help others, help serve others, and help free others. Love like he loved. How did he love? He loved us to the uttermost. He loved us beyond our fault, beyond our sin, beyond our shame. He loved us unconditionally. How did he give? He gave everything. He gave his life. How did he use his freedom? He used his freedom to set other people free. He defined God as a God of love and a God that is good. So the church was to love and be good to all. He was proof that God gave his best. So the church was to give its best towards God and everyone else. He taught the truth of God that would set people free. So the church was to advocate for and spread freedom always and everywhere. These values and these principles would be the fire the church was set by and fueled by right from go. And believe it or not, within 300 years, the Roman world, dominated by tyranny, dominated by terror, might and ruthlessness was changed forever, completely. Christianity was an unstoppable force within just a few decades, pressed on against persecution and oppression, preaching favor and freedom, loving, giving, serving, no matter the resistance, and they faced much of it. One decade at a time, the church grew and grew by showing what no one else would show, by challenging the ways the world perceived, the way the world perceived women, children, slaves, and poor. The church made room for everyone, loved everyone, empowered everyone, and welcomed everyone. And by 320 AD, the Roman Empire collapsed from within when its emperor declared he was giving up his pagan ways to follow the Jewish carpenter. You can't make that up, can you? And over the next 2,000 years, a brand new reality dawned on the world. You maybe have heard this term before, Christendom. The reality where the kingdoms of man adopt the values of God and become a prototype, not a perfect version, but a prototype of the kingdom to come. And this is where Western civilization was born. Western civilization embodied this idea of Christendom. Was it and has it always been perfect? No. Are there still ways that we are far from God's kingdom? Absolutely. But these, there are countless examples of Western kingdoms of man completely jettisoning their Christian values. And when they did so, it was in such contrast to what they claimed and professed, it ridiculed them so severely and it stood out so clearly. Out of all of this, the United States came into existence a nation built on these two Christian Luke 4 values, favor and freedom. A nation built on the way that Jesus defined greatness, serving others first. Built on the belief that all are equal in God's eyes, that all are valuable to God, with the aspiration of creating a place that is free, protecting freedom above all else, enabling and encouraging people to reach their God-given potential, to use freedom to serve God. These Christian values of loving, serving, and giving were baked into the American identity that we became the world leader in charity, the trendsetters in what was considered just the trendsetters in how to empower and assist people that are without. 
We redefine military action. Instead of choosing to fight because of what we might can gain, we decided to only fight when it looked like others might lose if we did not intervene. Slowly but surely, the world that operated by tyranny and terror was changed by the light that was shining out of this country. This is what came to define America, a place where favor and freedom, love, generosity, and service were core to who we were. Yes, there were signs that human nature sometimes disagreed with this and pushed against this. Yes, there were times when we did not have our best efforts put forth, but it just seemed as if America, the American conscience always centered us around these unavoidable truths. It always brought us back to this foundation where we advocate favor from God, freedom for people, that we are a place of love, generosity, and service. If you grew up in this country, isolated from the rest of the world, it would seem as if as if this is just how the world was. If you were like me and grew up in the late 90s, our naivety maybe spooled us to what the world was really like. But then 20 years ago, that line that Jesus drew in the sand was highlighted once more. The line between the old way and the new way. The line that sadly still divided Western and Eastern worlds. The line between tyranny and terror, favor and freedom. 20 years ago, we were confronted with the reality that there are forces in this world that do not want the old way to fade away. 20 years ago, we were reminded by a terrible act that continues to hurt our nation. 20 years later, it's right that we remember what that day represents and says to the church, by all means, we remember those that died that day and many that gave their life for the calls that came out of that day. But for the church, it is expedient that we remember what their loss tells us about the world and about our purpose in the world. While this may seem contrary to what our flesh thinks, 9-11 reminds us that our enemy is not of mere flesh and blood. Our enemy is not a particular political party, economic system, a foreign country, an organized group of villains. Our enemy is much worse. Our enemy is much more serious and wicked than that. If you look at Ephesians 6, look at verse number 12. Listen to how the Apostle Paul is prepping the early church for the battles they would face as they stood by this new line that God drew in the sand. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I know it looks like there's flesh and blood that we're wrestling against, but there's something worse behind it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of darkness of this age. Rulers of darkness of this age. This age of tyranny and terror. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our enemy is that which opposes favor and freedom, that which says there isn't a God who loves, there isn't a God who gave, there isn't a truth that frees. Our enemy is a platform and a system, any platform, any system that opposes the belief that every life matters to God, that suggests that we don't owe every single person wherever eye to eye with love, kindness, and generosity. 9-11 reminds us of the battle that we face every single day. And it especially reminds us of who we are and who we must be. And this is what our entire talk has been 
headed towards. This is what we, why we had this conversation and why I thought it was expedient for us to have this conversation today of all days. Leading up to this revelation, to this reminder, it's what all these keystone verses from John and from Ephesians and from Matthew and Luke have been about. 9-11, more than anything, reminds us of what Jesus began to preach that day in Nazareth and of the application he issued to his followers later on a hill when he preached the Beatitudes. He stood on a hillside and called together a following based on values that would be received as weak. He said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers. The people that Rome thought were weak, Jesus says, no, you guys are the ones that are going to change the world. You guys are going to inherit the earth. He closed that sermon out like this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preservative of the earth. You are what's going to keep this planet from rotting at its core. You are the things that are going to confront tyranny and terror with love, service, and generosity. You are going to bring the favor of God and advocate for freedom for all. You are the salt of the earth. And remember, if you lose your saltiness, if you lose your flavor, the world loses its hope. 9-11 reminds us who we are. We are the salt of the earth. How important it is that we continue to uphold these values and push forth these values because if not, what good is the salt anymore? You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, and it cannot be hidden. We don't put it under a basket, but you put it on a stand and you give light to the house. You are not a passive light. You're an active spotlight called to go into the world, love, give, and serve the world like Jesus did. Because this is the only hope that this line be highlighted and that you might get more and more people on the other side of it. You, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your good Father who is in heaven. This is who we are, church. This is who we are called to be, agents, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Not spectators, but participators. In light of who we are in the world, the favor we know, the freedoms we have, now more than ever, we must be salt and light and refuge. We who know that there is a good God, a loving God, a God who gave his best to set us free, we must do good and be loving and give our best and use our freedoms to serve one another. Because this is why we've been given this platform. There are plenty of people in this world that still operate by tyranny and terror. There are plenty more who live under the weight of oppression of tyranny and terror. But our calling as Christians, our responsibility as part of Christendom is that we continue to point the world towards the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus. We must allow Christ to reign and rule through us to preserve and shine and restore through us. There have been times and there will be times where you feel like your tactics should change. You may think, well, this is too soft. I'm not combative enough. I'm never going to face off against the enemy because he uses things that I don't use. 
We must remember that the way we defeat the enemy is not through equally and opposite tyranny and terror, but through preserving just as Christ did, persevering, enduring just as Christ did. When the world resorts to its tactics, we remain on the straight and narrow, loving, giving, and serving because that's how Jesus changed the world. As we close, I want to read this whole passage in Ephesians because I think it's so powerful and so important that the church understand what our purpose is. Back up to verse 10 and listen to verse 10 through 18 as, as Paul is preparing the church for the battle it will face. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. So what is his message? Stand, don't fight on their level. Don't use their tactics. Don't resort to tyranny and terror. There's a better way. There's the Christian way, the way of showing the favor from God and living the freedom from God, a way of love, a way of generosity, a way of kindness, a way of humility, a way of service. That's how the world was changed 2,000 years ago. And that's what the enemy hates. And that's why the enemy attacks institutions and places that uphold those values. But we must not fall. Verse 14, stand therefore, gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith that you can quench the fiery dart of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Notice this is not a, 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 an offensive strategy. This is a bold stance for the ways of God, a stance in a decision to stay with Jesus and to do what Jesus did which is give and serve and love. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all and with all the saints. And that last part is so key. Church, we need to renew our commitment to each other in our shared mission. 20 years ago, Sundays after 9-11 were filled out of fear, out of desire for comfort. Sadly, over the last 20 years, our faith has waned and we found faux comfort from other means. May the church remember who we are in these days and shine brighter than ever before. When and if the world wakes up to the false idols and empty wells it's aligned itself with, the church must be ready to show the way and make room. Until then, we cannot budge from the cross and we cannot budge from our Savior's throne. 20 years ago, we came out of fear, but we come together out of faith today in our God, out of focus on his plan. Church, now more than ever, we must double down on what changed the world 2,000 years ago. We must stand on Jesus' side of the line. We don't operate like the world does. We operate according to the kingdom of God, the values that Jesus embodied with his life and in his death. Now more than ever, the world needs us to remember who we are. 
We must always remember to be salt, to be light, and to be refuge. While things are rotting and breaking down, salt preserves. While things are getting dark and people get lost, light shines. When things get heavy and people get wearied, refuge welcomes all and comforts all. No matter what, church, we cannot lose sight of this. 20 years later, 9-11 loudly reminds us of the battle we face. It reminds the church who we are and who we must be. And the world may have long forgotten that, but you can't and we can't. Because the future of our world, knowing that there is a line and there is an invitation to embrace a new way, depends on the church being salt and light and refuge. In a world full of tyranny and terror, may we, the people of God, lift up the favor he has given us, the favor he gives everybody, and the freedom he has given us, and let us live our lives and even die if necessary spreading that favor and that freedom because it is a gift from God. We must be salt and light and refuge to keep this kingdom moving forward. We're on the winning side. The enemy wants you to think otherwise. We're on the winning side. So let's act as if we are winners, champions in the kingdom of God because that's who we are. We serve a risen Savior. It's his passion that we follow his will for our lives. But the will that has saved us and that can still save the rest of the world. Let me pray for you. Father, we know that we don't always do as you've called us to do. Sometimes we watch the world and we want to fight like the world fights. We want to do what the world does. And if anything, that's hurt the church over the last 20 years. Father, remind us how we got here and remind us why we are here. Remind us who we are and show us what we must do. Lord, thank you for showing us your heart today. Thank you for showing us this line in the sand that you established, that you changed the world with. Before you, there was no love. There was no generosity. There was no service. There was no idea behind that. Why would you do that? What gain will it bring? But since your death and resurrection, we know this is what changed the world. And we know that we have received favor from you. And there's a world out there that needs to know that. And they might understand that if we go and do as Jesus did for them. Love and give and serve them. God, thank you for freedom. May we spend our days advocating for and spreading more and more around the world and a world that is getting less free. May we remind people that there is a God who favors them and a God who can set them free inside and out. Lord, thank you for this passion that you've shown us today. May we keep the flame burning hot for the next generation, for the next 20 years. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing. If you have a need, the altar is open. Let's renew our commitment to being the church that God has called us to be.